La Sagrin, for example, was a term that I came across when I started doing my research, but it was something that I heard constantly um, whilst growing up because both of my grandparents were in different Chagossian community groups. And so within the same family, for example, there was one community group that my granddad was in that wanted one thing and another one that my grandma was in that wanted different things. So within the same family, there can be different wants and needs. Um, And I guess I think that's also reflective of the wider community um, as well. Um, Just different people wanting and needing different things, which is like absolutely normal. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research and struggle. everyone today we're coming back for a new episode of the phenomenalist podcast uh, the main uh, the main show of our podcast and uh, my guest is uh, audrey albert who is a, a mauritian chagossian manchester-based visual artist in particular in photography and a creative facilitator as well as a contributor to the phenomenalist uh, number 40 uh, 38 i'm sorry uh, she had written a, a, a gorgeous piece with uh, Shana Siong uh, called United States of Archipelagos, an intimate, de- an intimate take on the Chagossian struggle. And that's precisely what we will talk about today. So uh, hi, Audrey. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Hi. Hi, Leopold. Thank, thanks to you for having me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about the Chagossian struggle today. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I'm quite aware how our audience might be really, uh, on an entire spectrum of how much they know about the Chagossian struggle. So I guess perhaps we should be, uh, generous with them and perhaps go back a little bit to the, to the sort of historical, um, framework of what we will then discuss more specifically, and so perhaps my very first question might be a, a not so easy one to to make, but perhaps in, uh, if you if you if you don't mind, perhaps telling us a little bit about the, the history of Chagos and Chagosians uh, for the last three centuries. <laughs> that seems a, such a ridiculous question to ask, but uh, hopefully, hopefully, you'll, it won't be it won't be a problem for you. <laughs> um. So the the Chagos and the the Chagos Archipelago. Um, so initially, I'm, I'm from Mauritius, and Mauritius used to be a British colony. Um, and as part like as part of the Mauritian territory, there was lots of 
different islands that kind of in brackets belonged to Mauritius. Um, and when Mauritius got its independence, um, so the Chagos archipelago also be belonged to the Mauritian territory. Um, and there was so historically, some people believe that politicians back then were coerced and forced into giving the islands to the UK. And other historians believe that they willingly gave the islands to the UK so that they could be in power. So what happened was the Chagos was kind of given in exchange to the UK um, as a result of the, for Mauritius to be independent today as a result of Mauritian, the Mauritian independence. Um, and that happened in the late 60s. The UK then leased these islands to the US and the US um, transformed the main island, which is Diego Garcia, into a military base. Um, but what happened is both the UK and the US kind of hid the fact that there were natives on the archipelago and these natives were forcefully displaced um, between the late 60s and early 70s. Um, so people, it, it was a gradual process where, for example, on the Chagos, they used to, I think it was every six months, they would receive, um, you know, whatever, whatever they would need or want to be able to um, live properly on the islands. And that would be like, um, rice or um, oil different things that they would need to to live and these ships started coming less and less and there were different things that were implemented to kind of make their lives harder on the islands before the actual big deportation happened which basically was a bunch of military people that showed up and forced people on a ship and told them your homeland has been sold you have to get on this ship and go um, and natives back then weren't even allowed or didn't, didn't even have time to pack whatever they would need um, for what was to be a seven-day long journey at sea. Um, and they were then taken to places like the Seychelles and to Mauritius. But also some people who had already, for example, left the islands for different purposes. They were visiting family or they had gone to hospitals. They were to the hospital back in Mauritius they were told they couldn't go back um so it was like different different ways of just either taking people from their home or just telling them they couldn't go back home um and that's it's a fairly recent story um it only happened around 1968 um so since Mauritius got its independence really and since then um, Chagossian natives and descendants haven't been able to go back home or live back home except for um, heritage, I think that's what they're called heritage site visits so it's one day where you have to kind of fill an application there's a waiting list and everything it, it's a bit surreal and ironic to be honest um, and you're allowed to go and visit your homeland for one day but you're not allowed to stay on it um, and obviously, you're kind of under the um, supervision of the British military when that happens. Um, when Chagossians were 
kind of were deported to Mauritius, were forcefully displaced to Mauritius or to the Seychelles, um, they had to face a completely different lifestyle, a completely different culture from theirs. And also because they didn't have anything um, that they brought with them. So that kind of gave them not, not a lot of privileges and a huge step back already to kind of start um, living in, in a different country. Um, and Shagossians have unfortunately back then th this has changed now thank god um but back then they they were they were racially discriminated against a lot of shagossians had to hid the fact that they were from the shagos to be able to access different different things in terms of healthcare in terms of education and they were also back then within the mauritian populations amongst the members of the population who were living uh, under the poverty um, yeah, that like the, the poorest members of the community, um, and there's been different community groups since then, different ways of kind of protesting, different ways of making that struggle and that story and history known. Um, since then, some within different community groups, some people are fighting to go back on the Shagos. Some people are fighting for some form of reparations from the UK. Um, and some people just want to be, other people just want to be recognized. Like that's a nationality law, but I guess we'll talk about that more as well. Um, that was passed last year. Um, and a lot of people are really keen within the community are really keen to want to be recognized as Shagossians, but also as British citizens. Because um, I know I mentioned that the Shagos was part of the Mauritian territory, but there's this whole discourse now about was it really part of the Mauritian territory if it's never been completely decolonized? Um, so it's kind of a lot of people from the community seem to think that it's always been part and under the British government and that's how they want it to stay and they identify as Shagossians but also as British. Um, and now Shagossians are all over the world. Um, there's a community in Mauritius, there's a community in the Seychelles, there's a big community in Crawley near London and a smaller community in Withenshaw in Manchester, but they're also in different parts of the world. Um, yeah, I hope that kind of sums up <laughs> what happened. It, it does. Thanks. It it, uh, it almost it almost feels like you answered all my questions <laughs> at once, uh, but I guess we'll we'll take it as a as a at an opening uh, synthesis on, on what we're about to go, maybe a little bit more into details. Uh, perhaps for people to realize also, I mean, you know, of course, uh, people living in, uh, uh, in or around the Indian Ocean will be acutely aware of this, but uh, is how far is Chagos from, uh, uh, from Mauritius, which is like about 2,000 kilometers. So uh, uh, somewhat like when we when we get into oceanic uh, geography, uh, people tend to sort of, I mean, those distances seems to be like very, you know, we talk about how people are being displaced to, you know, another, another archipelago down south, but like we're, if we were dealing with the same sort of distance in the continental context, I think uh, many, many people would be a little bit more uh, acutely, uh, 
understanding of the sort of drasticness of uh, being uprooted from an up, from a homeland to somewhere else. Even the Maldives, which uh, uh, is the closest uh, country from Chagos, is, is still like 500 kilometers. And, um, uh, and, and something that I also wanted to mention is, is the sort of the layering of, of European uh, colonialism uh, on, on Chagos, because we've got first the Portuguese and the French and the British, uh, now still the British, but uh, uh, with, of course, uh, 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 US, the U.S. Uh, Navy as, uh, as the main presence on, uh, on Chagosian homeland. Um, and so, and so the, yeah, this is, this is something that also we can talk about in a very sort of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I mean, uh, in a very Wikipedia kind of, kind of way. But I think one, one aspect of the text you had written with Shane uh, was also how your, your own grandmother uh, was part of the people who had been uprooted. And, and you were very keen in the, in the text to really uh, center her. So I, I suppose we could, we could do the same uh, uh, right now if you, if you want to do so. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm happy to do that. Do you want me to elaborate and talk about yeah? <laughs> um so within within my own family, I guess it's something that we've never really um what's the word been outspoken about. Um it's something that we I mean within my my mum's side of the family especially. It's something that we all knew and it was very normal for all of us it was just a part of us and of our identity but it's something that was also shushed um kind of thing and something that we were told when I was younger for example like not to mention or not to talk about or to only talk about within you know close family members context and it was only when I started doing research um and trying to just openly talk about this with my parents, my grandparents and my aunties, for example, um, that I started to kind of put the pieces together and understand why, why kind of it was almost a taboo subject without being a taboo subject, if that makes sense. So what, for I was very naive and I grew up more within Mauritian culture than Chagossian culture, for example. Um and I don't think I realized the amount of discrimination that Chagossians faced or that the, what's the word, like the, the very natural bias that people would have if you mentioned that you are a Chagossian descendant or you're Chagossian. And then I guess what kind of made me even more naive is that my family on my mom's side is very kind of Indo-Mauritian passing. Um, despite having Chagossian heritage. Um, but they still faced, my, my grandma still faced different forms of discrimination. And it's by doing the research that I understood why there were some things she didn't want to necessarily talk about or openly talk about in front of strangers or any other people. So it kind of, kind of made sense to me. Um, but also to do with her own story, I guess, and I wonder, it, it's something she very rarely talks about. She very rarely talks about the deportation and she's got 
very different stories about it as well. Um, and I do feel since I started like my own personal creative practice, which is to do with Chagossian culture and Chagossian history and stories, um, it's only then that I started to get to know my grandparents, I guess, in a very different light and in a very different way, even though I know them very well, but it was through other people who knew them um, back on Diego Garcia, for example, and who had grown up with them that I heard kind of different stories and different aspects of who they are. Um, yeah, so my, my grandma lost her mum after she came to Mauritius um, shortly after. And it's something she doesn't, she doesn't really talk about. And I don't, and I don't want to, I mean, at the very beginning of my project, I don't think I was aware of how to handle trauma with care yet um, and how to navigate different conversations. Um, but I guess I still didn't want to be insisting and just having people relive um, different things they didn't necessarily want to relive. Um, but I realized that the, the, the journey must have been traumatic and losing a mom must have been traumatic. Um, for example, now when asked, or, or even throughout the years since I started the project, when asked about what happened, how it was, she would always say that she was, she was too young to remember. Um, she doesn't remember or she doesn't, she remembers more of Mauritius than of the Chagos. And, um, but then, um, so for example, I wanted to know more about the deportation. Once she told me that she wasn't on the boat she was already in Mauritius with her mum because they had come to the hospital. But then there was another time that, and, and once she told me that she was 12, another time she told me that she was 18. And then I met someone here who I now call uncle. And he went to school with my grandma and he knows my granddad. They, It's a really close family friend. And they kind of grew up, well, not grew up. They lived in the same area in Mauritius as well after the deportation and through this kind of uncle slash granddad he told me that they were all on the same boat um when the deportation happened so I guess it kind of made sense to me about why she wouldn't talk about it or wouldn't want to talk about it um but for example my granddad wasn't born on the archipelago um, and it's still things I I feel like it's this huge puzzle. There's like lots of pieces of information that I thought I had, but then it turns out it's not that. And I'm still learning about new things just being put together. So I, I always thought that my granddad grew up uh, on the Chagos, that he went there when he was like a young man. But it turns out he didn't. He lost his parents. I think his grandparents or maybe even parents were indentured laborers. Um, and he lost them when he was really young. He was still a baby and he was adopted by a Shagossian family um, who took him on Diego Garcia. So he grew up there. He spent and he used to work on coconut plantations there. And he is way more um, open to talk about his memories. And even very recently, um, I listened to an interview that Shane did with him. I think it was last year or the year before when Shane met my grandparents in Mauritius um, and my granddad told him something that really stayed with me and he said 
even if you took me back now, I would know exactly where everything is and I'd be able to take you wherever you want to go. So he's very open to talk about his his memories and, and work and the, the process prior to the de- the deportation and and what happened and yeah it's it's very interesting um and I guess it's through the both of them that I learned like that there are things that I didn't really learn about I just knew about them like food different foods different types of music um um Shagossian songs and yeah not even mu- I mean musical instruments um and like what what their lives used to be like um on the islands but because I grew up more in Mauritian culture than Shagostian culture I guess when I moved to the UK that created some kind of even stronger bond I guess between me and home and me and my cultural heritage um and I was really curious about it and I always knew it's something I wanted to learn more about and explore um and that's how I started the project and that's how these conversations with my family started and it was all very natural and very open as if it's not something we've never not talked about um and everyone was willing to share their bit um yeah so that's my experience thank you um I mean, if it was not clear enough uh, uh, yet, I think perhaps I could restate that uh, it, between 1968 and 1973, it is no less than 100% of the, the Chagossian nations that have been uh, deported by, uh, by the British, uh, which makes it, uh, which makes it effectively uh, uh, a diasporic nation, like the entire nation. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that diasporic dimension. Also, to you specifically, we have at least two of those geographies of, you know, you said the Seychelles, uh, Mauritius, and Britain being like the three main uh, spaces, let's say, where Chagossian uh, people have been have been deported to. Um, could you, yeah, could you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, the diasporic nature of that um, of that community, and uh, and perhaps also address something you've wrote in the text uh, uh, using a word of Mauritian Creole or Chagossian Creole actually uh, uh, to 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 describe what people are going through uh, uh, that I that I probably that might be pronounced uh, la sagrin. Uh, which I, I can recognize the French word chagrin uh, behind it, uh, sorrow, and, and the continued trauma that uh, people are, are experiencing. Um, yeah, so la sagrin, for example, was a term that I came across when I started doing my research, but it was something that I heard constantly um, whilst growing up because both of my grandparents were in different community groups different Shagossian community groups and so within the same family for example there was one community group that my granddad was in that wanted one thing and another one that my grandma was in that wanted different things so within the same family there can be different wants and needs Um, and I guess I think that's also reflective of the wider community um, as well Um, just 
different people wanting and needing different things, which is like absolutely normal. And la sagre is a term that I heard, you know, from the different meetings or pro or protests that that my grandparents would would go to, or from the different friends that they had that would come, um, that would come at home at, at my grandparents and you would always hear some like someone it would be an elder or a native that died for, from la sagra um and this is kind of a phenomenon that happened also almost en masse shortly after the the deportation happened and people were just kind of th thrown on on the quay um in Portree in in Mauritius um but I guess, sorry, I forgot your question. What what was it was about the diaspora, right? Um, and I guess it's something that, as like a third generation or a descendant, I know of it through. It's not my lived experience. I don't have first hand experience of it. But it's something that we are in, like within and we hear about and it's kind of like constant and it's just around us and even like my exp with within the families that I've worked with that I know now and that I also consider kind of my own families because I've met so many people that I now call uncle auntie or so many really close friends um you know these families that are that that for whom it, it was never an issue to hide the fact that they were Shagossian and they're proudly Shagossian. I feel like it's even more, it, it's even deeper, um, if that makes sense, that, that kind of really deep sadness that is felt through all of the different people and that is almost transmitted from the, the figurehead, the elders um, who has lived through the deportation um but what i think is the the community is is super resilient and super spread out and resilient in terms of people are very proud to be shagossian and to still live their culture wherever they are and whether that's in mauritius or in the uk and i think even in mauritius now there has been some kind of shift and change in terms of the racial discrimination that was faced by Shagossians before, where they there's so many pejorative terms, there's so many horrendous things that are said or have been done to Shagossians because they've always, like Shagossians don't identify as Mauritians and even in Mauritius they were always considered kind of second-class citizens, if not worse than that. Um, but I have I've seen a shift um, and I, I I wonder why that is and if it's because people are more outspoken about who they are and where their ancestors are from and also people are more aware now of the history and of what happened and want to know more and are curious about it. Um, like, for example, it's not something that we're taught in schools. Like, I never learned about where my grandparents were from in primary school or in high school but it's just something I knew because it was in my family it's a word that I'd heard it's you know going to protest going to meetings queuing up because there was 
some major law that was being changed and all of those different things. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers your question in terms of the diaspora. I I think yeah I think it does um, uh, and and specifically I think it also leads us to the next point that I wanted to to talk about which is precisely the organi- political organizing that has happened uh, throughout since uh, the seventies of course but uh, more recently and perhaps closer to our generation uh, uh, the efforts to uh, uh, well, I guess you'll you'll tell. I mean, you already hinted at the fact that not everyone is fighting necessarily for the exact same thing with the same agenda with the same uh, goals. Uh, but precisely, could you could you tell us a little bit about this political effort uh, to uh, claim reparations, to claim return, uh, uh, in particular in Britain, which of course is a, uh, uh, and this is also I guess a hint at the diasporic dimension of things because. Uh, it also means that there is a Chagossian uh, community in the eye of the empire, so to speak, that can that can actually fight from there as for some of them citizens. But I think you'll, you'll tell us a little bit about the absurdity of that dimension of citizenship when it comes to Britain and the, and the Chagossian. Um, I think it's quite powerful and historical what happened um so for the people who might not be aware um back when she was foreign secretary i think uh pretty patel um started a bill called the i think it's called the nationality bill um something like that and there was to be different reviews or new things to be implemented within the bill and initially it was to try to right the wrongs committed towards people from the Windrush generation. Um, and then different commu- Shagossian community groups really came together, which was amazing. Like it just shows how, you know, organization and, and people coming together to to want to be seen and heard and included can change so many things. Um, so all of these organizations lobbied um, to be included, to have Shagossians be included in that bill, because before that, I think the law stated that it was only Shagossians who were born between, I don't have the years on the top of my head, but it was, for example, only Shagossians who were born between X and X year. It, it would have been, I think, my grandma's generation. 69 and 82. There you go. I have your text in front of me. That's really where I, where I, I got them from. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it was only people who, who were born between 69 and 82 who could um, claim the, the British nationality and the British passport. Um, and when I moved to the UK, I was even researching that because... That law wasn't a thing then. Um, and after, so I was <clears throat> on a student visa when I moved to the UK and afterwards that visa had to change. And I was like, well, what, what, is, what is the solution for Shagossian descendants? What, what is available for us? And I was trying to look it up. Um, and I asked around and I asked different people and it just sounded like the most horrendous impractical process 
I mean, even visa processes are slightly inhumane, horrendously expensive, and just really, they can be really triggering. They're, they're, they're really heavy processes to go through, just the normal one. Um, and this one, I, I was told that my grandma would have, would have to apply for the citizenship or even move to the UK. My mum would have to do the same thing, do the application through my grandma. And then I could potentially do that through them. But it's not even a guarantee of it's going to be approved. It's going to be a yes. So it just sounded like a lot of faff, a lot of just, and, and you still have to pay for it. So what happened when the community came together and lobbied, there was lots of kind of um, petitions, there was lots of meetings with MPs and people that have done amazing work. There's um, a community group called Shagossian Voices who has been you know, at the forefront since the very beginnings of wanting to be included in. There's a, an amazing young woman called Rosie Lévesque. She also was... Um, they're one of, I guess, like the the main figureheads of this fight. And there's the whole, uh, another really big community group called BIOT Community or BIOT People. And they've got a branch in Mauritius and in the UK. Um, there's the Chagos, uh, the Chagos Refugee Group that also came together um, for, for this kind of lobbying to happen. Um, and they managed to, to do it and the law changed last year so it's it's historical and what what it means now is families can be reunited because what the the old law was doing was kind of perpetuating that separation and that displacement within the same family some people from the same family could be in the uk um like the mum could be in the uk but some of her kids could still be in mauritius or somewhere else and what it means now is anyone who can prove they're a Shagossian native or a Shagossian descendant can um, apply for the BOTC, I think it's B BOT citizenship, um, and apply to become a British citizen as well, to get the British nationality. Um, which, yeah, which I think, and it's for, it's free. Um, it's like a, a free process, a free, I think it's called the Shagossian pathway. Um, I have have got my own reservations about that. I mean, I still don't know, even now, I don't, it's something that makes me happy um, because of how, you know, people who might be in situations of, in, of, in situations of I I illegality, is that the right word? in the UK to just be able to be with their families. They didn't have any other choice. They, they've they lived here for their whole lives. Um, so it, it means that families can be reunited. It means that there's not going to be financial strain on families who are already, you know, not in, not necessarily in, in like harder socioeconomics and having to face harder socioeconomic conditions because of their history and because of what happened um, and because of just the inaccessibility of certain things also in the UK. Um, so that that makes me really happy. It makes me happy for myself, not having to work for years just to save a lot of money and go through that 
really stressful, anxiety-inducing process of applying for a visa. But then that bill, that new nationality bill, has all has also got some horrendous kind of clauses um, towards asylum seekers, towards refugees. So it's it's as if it's like a right done to a certain community, but then it's taking also so many other things. So it's like au détriment of, I, I don't know what the word would be in, in English. Um, it's of, of other people. So it, again, it's still perpetrating discrimination. It's like, it's like what happened 53, 54 years ago. Mauritius got its independence, but a whole community was forcefully displaced and traumatized and, it's just it's kind of a continuation of that of just horrendous things that would be enabled towards asylum seekers and refugees so that that puts me kind of like yeah I, I don't really know how to feel about it it's very b bittersweet and then the other really big thing is I don't want to be British it, like to me I, I don't of course, it's very practical in terms of it allows me to access di like different things. It allows me to stay on this territory where I have started a life and where I have started work, which I love, but it's not my identity. It's not who I want to be. And I have I've done the application. I've gone through it just because of convenience, but it's never something that I would proudly say it's never something that I would yeah um, and and I know that might shock a lot of people from the community because there's more people and a lot of people from the community who identify as British who are you know really happy with the current um, British government because it's this it's under this government that this law has been passed but to me the a lot of the things done said or that have been done done for the last 10 years or for the last however many years I've been in the UK by the Tory government it just doesn't align with who I am as a person as an artist and yeah the yeah so it's like a very conf it's lots of conflicting emotions to me yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, you've been, I think, very, I mean, fair, it's not me to say, of course, but you've really, you've really rendered the, the, the tension of, of uh, this kind of legislation can, can trigger between, I mean, I mean, exactly like you said, like the, the whole uh, uh, horrendous process that one has to experience when trying to get a visa, as simple as that, uh, uh, while also recognizing i think that if 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 that particular clause which as you said is is a discriminatory clause for so many other people uh is a form of reparations to the shagosian community it is it is very much like the 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 the, the most minimal kind of form of, of of reparation and one could even argue that it is sort of following a historical path of colonial powers trying to assimilate a population that it had uprooted into their own society. Also, because we were talking about a, 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 
a fraction of uh, of uh, of uh, population compared to uh, the British society at large. But of course, uh, sh- it doesn't matter how many Chagossians are. It's like they are who they are, and they are as, as many as they are, and they've all hundred percent of them have, have been deported. So. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about those uh, political horizons that people have been also fighting for with, with regards to either return, uh, re- rendition of, of their country, uh, or other forms of reparations that uh, people have been fighting about? Yeah, so that's just from my opinion and from what I've observed. It seems like and and it's um so understandable um that natives want to return to their homeland because it's you know they have like i mentioned before they have that first hand lived experience and it's only natural and normal for them to want to return so it's to me i think it's a majority of elders that do want to return and then with younger generations maybe my generation or even generations after me there is this kind of trying to seek for a better um standard of living like a better future from more career options and that's what it seems it's what it seems to be happening also in Mauritius with different families wanting to like within my own family for example um my own my auntie and my uncle they've got young children who haven't finished high school and they do want to potentially move to the UK so that their kids can, you know, study whatever they want in uni. And um, so there's that prospect of like career and a different lifestyle and maybe an improved lifestyle. But how much of that it would be true, accessible, you know, it's, um, yeah, so there's, different people wanting different things I guess to do within like what they might need like individually um so yeah and that there would be I guess it is that there's this kind of want to return but also like fight to return but also this whole process of making coming to the UK as accessible as possible. And then when I was mentioning the whole visa process as well, like I completely understand why that new law is such a positive because it's not ever like I get that applying for a visa and going for it, being able to save, being able to do, you know, multiple jobs. It's still a privilege that not a lot of people within the community can afford to do can afford to do uh, um can afford to save up can afford to do kind of different jobs and yeah so so even with that like going with that kind of visa even if the process is horrendous i kind of get why on the other hand that must be such a positive and people would i mean i get it but i also don't get it in terms of like why would the support to such a government that is so um what's the word harmful i guess to yeah to to people of color <laughs> if that yeah if that makes sense um 
yeah, I think I've lost my stream of I mean, perhaps if I may come to your support here, I, I think per perhaps this whole question of visa is also uh, can only can only be considered a sort of advancement or uh, a, a sort of uh, yeah form of reparation if we situate ourselves within a framework that gives value and legitimacy to a system that authorize some people to live uh, where they live and, and others not. So in that case, that might be more the absence of state violence that we are sort of like looking at than uh, the usual state violence that uh, states in European states in particular are implementing through this visa process, right? So that's why I'm saying it, it could not be more minimal. It's literally the absence of arm and uh, that still remains to be discussed, actually, if that's true, but yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, in practical terms and in implemented terms, what does that look like? How easy is the process? How long is it? Do, does it actually enable people to move here and access different things and and improve their, you know, their future, the future of their children? And I'm also very... Um, what what would the word like suspicious of the reasons of like why now what is the agenda of the british government why is that happening now and why does it seem to be why does there seem to be such a big tory following in a huge part of the community um that's something that i'm always kind of asking myself and then on the mauritian side as well there's the question that I've asked myself a few times, why, you know, for the past 50-ish years, Mauritius didn't have, didn't do anything for Shagossians. And um, I mean, I, I say, Mar I mean, the Mauritian government, I don't mean Mauritians as, um, because that's, yeah, like the, the Mauritian government hasn't done anything um for Shagossians. and then very recently there's been talks of the sovereign the sovereignty of the islands does that go back to Mauritius does it go to the UK um there's been the whole ICJ court case and so we yeah I I'm it, it makes me question the agenda of both governments and yeah I mean, this this was going to be my next question, essentially, because, you know, we, we briefly talked about a potential return uh, of uh, Chagossian to, to the Chagos, essentially. Uh, uh, and that, of course, asked the question of sovereignty. And the one uh, uh, institutional actor that is claiming sovereignty at the moment is the Mauritian government, which, uh, which of course, is uh, a sort of... Um, uh, fraught uh, 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 thing to consider uh, and also perhaps to think about it even at a larger scale of the scale of the entire ocean itself uh, that I don't really want to name Indian in that particular instance specifically because I think that we're of course talking about uh, British and US colonialism here but I think the, the Indian imperialism in the region as well is something to be considered, especially and it's and something you briefly mentioned uh, 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 in a sentence earlier that I feel we could also perhaps try to 
um, talk a little bit more about it. You 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 mentioned the the uh, the Indo Mauritian uh, uh, sort of uh, ethnic group that is very much the one in power uh, for ever since uh, 1967 and uh, the independence of, of Mauritius. You can you can listen to uh, Island the the podcast episode we did with our good friends of uh, Island Pieces. Um, and, uh, and also, you know, seeing also the sort of, uh, complicities that exist and, and of course, a, 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 a non-symmetrical complicity, but, uh, between Mauritian and Indian governments and, uh, the fact that, uh, the, uh, the Indian, uh, the Indian army might, uh, might get a brand new military bases on, uh, on, uh, Agalega, like one of the Northern, uh, Northern Archipelago uh, of, of under Mauritius sovereignty today. So could we could we perhaps talk a little bit about that as well as the fact that so you know I said like um, and perhaps that goes back to the very first question the history of Chagos as well. Although of course Chagosians are not like an homogeneous uh, group, uh, very easily identifiable for as uh, a migration that it uh, it might have taken and before. Uh, indigenizing itself if i may see this this way in the in the archipelago but it is it is also uh, a black nation i think we should probably we should probably say it this way so it is nothing of all this is in is politically innocent i feel so perhaps could you unpack this a little bit for us um yeah i so i guess it's it initially it's and maybe that was to do with more so of like years and years ago where people had this very specific stereotype of what a Shagossian person looks like or what who a Shagossian person is. Um, but I've, I, and I've been to kind of, Shagossian meetings and where, where I can almost hear people whisper constantly when when they see me and be like oh so there were there were Indo-Mauritians on on the Shagos and there were there were Indo-Shagossians and um yeah so I hmm I don't really know what but it's it's definitely like an it's an Afro-descendant community and it does seem that more, especially with like the workshops that I've done since last year, I've met so many people my age who also wouldn't, you know, like the idea that you associate or attribute to, like there isn't any, there shouldn't be any, but there's still that kind of bias that people have of who a Shagossian is. And I've met so many people who kind of resonated with my experience or who also look like me and who have who are afro descendants but also indo descendants and shagossians and yeah sorry i'm a bit scattered in my thoughts no no i think that's because my question was very all over the place for sure but also not trying to be all over the place but trying to describe the sort of various scales uh, of politics that sort of engulf uh, Chagos, Chagos uh, uh, in, at, at the scale of the archipelago, at the scale of the relationship with uh, Mauritius, but also at the scale of the entire ocean somehow. So I don't know if that makes you want to react or... 
Yeah, because we 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 were also talking about the Indian imperialism, right? Um, and before that, in the previous question, I mentioned how I was very suspicious of the the why now of these governments wanting to. I'm sorry. All, all of a sudden being interested by the fate of Shagossians or the fate of the the actual land and especially when thinking of what has been happening for years on Agalica and what is still happening on Agalica which is now it's been kind of openly uh, said decided seen that it is the construction of um of an Indian military base so the the I, and I think I speak for myself, but I, from what I've observed and seen as well, that a majority, if not all, of the Shagossian community do not want that sovereignty, you know, to go back to Mauritius, to the Mauritian government, because there is no trust there, especially when they're seeing what has happened and what is happening to Adaliga. And very rightly so, people are asking themselves, well, what happens then? What happens if the the sovereignty of the Shagos goes back to Mauritius? What what do they do with it? And there's also this saying of like, well, Mauritius has sold it once. It wouldn't mind selling it again, selling it twice. And like, what what is the what does that imply? Um, yeah. So that it, there's all of that tug and like geopolitical like power dynamics to do with it too um yeah yeah i i mean i think it's fair to imagine that as a the the very minute that mauritius would gain a sovereignty over chagos they would they would sign then a contract with the u.s the u.s navy and and uh, and basically the same thing would would continue with a different uh, yeah um, so up until now, and this is of course uh, towards the end of our conversation, but we we've been um, some somewhat separating you uh, as as a uh, as an artist to what we've been talking about. But of course, it is very much central to your artistic practice. Everything we've been talking about. So could you perhaps a little bit tell us about uh, both your uh, creative practice uh, as as an artist, but also the, what what you call creative facility facilitating that uh, might also involved uh, what we've been talking about. Yeah, um, so I I'm a photographer um, and I explore digital photography, analog photography, but also different photographic process that involve making a photograph without using a camera and they're called cameraless processes. Um, I'm very interested in kind of consequences of colonialism, um, decolonization of the self, um, of I guess trying to do that through my work too and in history kind of anthropology and in I'm also interested in like culture and heritage um and I guess where all of that started was this trying to find home by being away from home and just being very intrigued and wanting to explore that notion of home and what it means um and then I started working on a photo series 
called Matter Out of Place since 2017. Um, and Matter Out of Place is an exploration of Shagossian culture, a celebration of Shagossian culture as well, and kind of an investigation of Shagossian history. Um, and it kind of documents different objects that are directly connected to Shagossian culture. Um, and what I would do, and the way I work is I would look at kind of historical research or sociological or anthropological research, and then that would trigger different emotions or even different visuals that would make me, yeah, that would make me want to create something. But with Matter Art of Place, a lot of, a lot of the images and a lot of the objects used and are symbolic and it's almost like um like re trying to reclaim different terms that I came across um that were written oh, some of them were kind of part of the WikiLeaks scandal that happened that was about the Shagos as well um yeah so it's about reclaiming those terms and making them Shagosian again or just making them Shagosian to begin with um, and then doing also a tribute to the coconut, which is a very powerful Shagossian food, staple food object. Um, and then very organically, this project also became a creative community project, which is where the creative facilitating kind of um, came in. Um, and my creative community project started in 2020 um, and it's called Shagossians of Manchester and basically in Shagossians of Manchester we um, it's intergenerational workshops um, where people are encouraged to come together um, get to know each other so I facilitate conversations during these workshops that would then help people create make their own visual representations of what they want to say or of memories to do with their elders their parents their grandparents their ancestors or with their own memories um so in Shagossians of Manchester we have two workshops one of them in one of them we make photos without using a camera it's called a cyanotype process or sun printing um, and that's around food memories so it's about using our senses to kind of trigger specific food memories and explore that um yeah and what what it means to be in between all of these different kind of countries and identities um, and then in the second workshop i explore oral history because i realized that so the Shagossian society is a matriarchal society and not only within my own family, but I'd noticed the similarities within other families as well, where it's the matriarch, the, the grandma, that would kind of transmit the histories and the stories of her own family or her own elders or of the islands. Um, and I noticed that within the community, a lot of people did that, where you would gather around grandma doing that. Um, so I tried to use that as a method to start conversations between people where they asked a series of questions 
they ask it to each other. They only have a limited amount of time to answer. They record themselves and then they pick their favorite answer or their favorite question. And I have a studio set up and I help them with it and they make their own visual representation of these answers. Um, and, and that's what we do in the workshops. Um, initially, I wanted to have like a, so the workshops are by Shagossians for Shagossians only. Um, and at the end of them, I'm looking to have kind of Shagos open days where people can come and discover the artworks that we've made or discover Shagossian food, Shagossian culture. I've not done that yet, kind of as part of Shagossians of Manchester on its own. But then last year, I worked on a project that Shagossians of Manchester was a partner on. It was called Bleu Coulé à la Case, which means blue is the colour of home. Um, and we did workshops. And then as a result of the workshops, we had two exhibitions that were open to the public and people could come and discover um, who are Shagossians. And I worked mainly with Shagossian women during the workshop. So, and then they made their own kind of visual representations of who they are, of their yeah, memories connected with their ancestors. Um, yeah, so the kind of like the events are open to the public for people to come and discover and find out more. Um, and that that's what I do. That's kind of what my work is about. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Audrey. Merci beaucoup. Uh, I, might, I might say that uh, as a good complement of this conversation, uh, for those of us who understand uh, Mauritian Creoles, they might want to listen to the conversation you had with, again, friends of Island Pieces uh, that have like a full episode uh, in Creole with you. And uh, and once again, there's also uh, this beautiful text you wrote with Shane in uh, the Phenomenalist number 38, which is in open access on the website. So thanks again so much for everything. Well, thanks to you. Thanks for having me.